I am always very seriously interested in people's best arguments for something. I spend a lot of time looking for best arguments as I'm studying theology or apologetics, that kind of thing. A lot of time Googling and searching and checking for articles that might give me the best argument for an issue or against an issue, even against my own positions on things. I learn a lot that way. And this article purports to do that. It says that it gives the three famous atheists and their best arguments ultimately against God. So this is what we're going to be talking about today. Um, now, normally this would be the Monday video, but A, it's not on Monday, and B, it's not Mark. It's not in the Mark series. This is just like a one-off. I'm coming back to the Mark series in two weeks. This week I'm doing this. Next Monday, I will be doing an interview with Tim Stratton on the free will argument for God's existence. So we're very apologetics heavy in the next two weeks. And we're going to be going through this article. This is by uh, the author Sam Wickstrom. And uh, let me just uh, preface it with this. This article does not represent all atheists. I just I came across this article at some point in the past. I took it down a note and said, maybe one day I'll do something on this. I'm not doing the Mark teaching for two weeks. And so I just went to my old notes and pulled something out to talk about and then spent way too much time on it. So, so here we go. This is, this is low-hanging fruit. I fully admit it. There are five reasons, five arguments against God. There will be timestamps in the description if you want to bounce around. After this video, is, you know, we've recorded it and all that, and we got the timestamps, we'll put it there, and you can bounce around. I'm not trying to hold you captive, but here's the deal. The first four of these arguments are circular. They're bad. They're cringy in all reality. Now, they may not sound that way when you first hear them, but we'll think through them critically. They're even self-refuting for the most part. The fifth argument against God is very difficult. Now, Sam Wickstrom in the article presents a weak version of that argument, probably the weakest version of it. I'm going to talk about it in more detail, though. The argument itself, the problem of evil, is a, is, is a challenging and difficult argument. So we will talk about all that kind of stuff. There's going to be a long video. If you don't like long videos, you didn't click it probably anyways, uh, but I'm going to go through it all in detail. I don't want to waste any of your time. I think this is all very valuable stuff. I mean, what's more important than the existence of God in, in our worldview and changes everything about everything. And if Christianity is true and evidentially true, as I say, yes, it most certainly is, then guess what? Um, that changes everything too. Then, the, then this whole simple gospel of Jesus is Lord and give your life to Christ and trust in him and be forgiven and, and, and be restored in relationship to God and all these things are actually true. Like that's reality. Well, that, that's what I think. However, that is not what this gentleman thinks. Sam Wickstrom, and by the way, Sam, if you're watching this video, um, this is going to feel like a personal attack. It really is not. I don't mean it that way in any way, shape, or form. I don't know you, Sam. I'm not really trying to respond to you on a personal level. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer you some personal things as we go through this video. But mostly, I want to deal with these arguments because even though I would call this low-hanging fruit and I would say that these arguments are self-refuting, I also think that what you've written here, it represents tons of content that I hear from atheists all the time. I mean, this is why I would deal with low-hanging fruit, not to straw man my, my opponent, so to speak, but rather to recognize there's a real need to deal with these arguments, even if they're bad arguments, because they're so prevalent in the online world. The most common atheist arguments I hear are the worst ones. And I don't say that to be mean, but this is honesty. This is just clarity here. I, I think you guys would appreciate that much. All right, so <clears throat> we're going to dig into it. Oh, hold on. There is a, re a reader's poll. Am I religious? Yes. All right, Richard Dawkins is the first guy. That's the guy with the glasses there. And Richard Dawkins is the first atheist who's considered one of the top atheists. Let me read to you what Sam writes about Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is an English ethologist, evolutionary biologist, and author. He wrote the 2006 best-selling book, The God Delusion. In that book, he made some pretty compelling arguments for atheism. And I think, 
it's hard for me to see here, but I think it's right around here in my bookshelf. Maybe it's right about there. Anyway, right around there. And um, yeah, I have the copy of The God Delusion. Now, this is what um, other atheists have responded to Richard Dawkins as whether he's a top atheist or not. So what I want to do right now is read to you. I want to read to you what it was written by um, uh, Michael Roos about Richard Dawkins and specifically about his book, The God Delusion. Because here's the thing. If you as an atheist think Richard Dawkins is a fantastic proponent of atheism, what that means is that intellectually you are on the bottom rung of atheism. Yet that is where most atheists are. And that is why I want to make this kind of video. So let me read it to you from, an, from a fellow atheist, a philosopher, Michael Roos. He says the following. But I think first that these people do a disservice to scholarship. Their treatment of the religious viewpoint is pathetic to the point of non-being. Yeah, that would be Richard Dawkins. That would be Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, Matt Dillahunty. That, that's that's this, this class of people. Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion would fail any introductory philosophy or of religion course. Proudly, he criticizes that whereof he knows nothing. As I've said elsewhere for the first time in my life, I felt sorry for the ontological argument. If we criticized gene theory with as little knowledge as Dawkins has of religion and philosophy... He would rightly be indignant. Conversely, I am indignant. This is Michael Roos here speaking. I am indignant at the poor quality of argumentation in Dawkins, Dennett, Hitchens, and all others in that group. I've written elsewhere that the God delusion, that's Dawkins' book, makes me ashamed to be an atheist. Let me say it again. Let me say also that I am proud to be the focus of the invective of the new atheists. They are a bloody disaster, and I want to be on the front line of those who say so. Now, soon we'll see that this is not; these aren't just empty words. We're going to actually go through the argumentation that's presented by Richard Dawkins, echoed by Sam in this article here, and we'll see right now, specifically, what is wrong with this thinking. So here we go. And uh, welcome to, to, the, to the live stream. Uh, I'm Pastor Mike Winger. I do theology and apologetics all the time online. Um, I have tons of verse by verse teaching as well as lectures on specific, you know, trying to break down specific tough issues, especially the tough issues of theology and also apologetics, which is what we're doing today. So here we go. This is the article. He says, <clears throat> quoting Richard Dawkins from his book, The God Delusion. We are all atheists about most of the gods of hum that humanity has ever believed in. Some of us just go one God further. Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion. So the first argument is this. We're all atheists. We're all atheists. So the first argument, best argument, number one argument, we're all atheists. Let's read through the article here and try to understand how this reasoning works. In this argument, Dawkins is pointing out the obvious fact that we all look at historical religions with plenty of skepticism. It would be absurd to believe that Zeus and Thor really do exist, or that the gods of ancient Egyptians are still out there wandering about. When a religious person stops to consider this, it will be a painful truth for them to realize that their religion is very much the same as those in the past. So it will logically follow that their religion is likely the same kind of desperation for supernatural control in the universe. These kinds of simple arguments are what made me seriously struggle to believe in the God of the Bible. But the beauty of it is that this argument can easily be applied to all religions. Okay, so that's really two issues, two very different issues that are overlapping in this first argument. We're all atheists. First, let me say this. Um, for those who are interested in looking for like philosophical arguments, like a, a thoughtful argument where you're like premise one, premise two, or if this, then that, you won't find that in this article and you won't generally find that on, in online atheism or what I like to call pop atheism. 
pop level atheism you will generally find criticisms critiques uh rhetoric and and just assertions but that's what we have here so first the assertion is number one there is little difference between monotheists and atheists there's very little difference right we just believe in one less god than you you're practically an atheist in fact he even says we're all atheists i i recently saw uh i guess arn Ra had tweeted that out that everyone's an atheist um i think i think that's what he had tweeted out and <clears throat> Anyhow, uh, the second issue, we'll, we'll cover them one at a time. The second issue is going to be if you have consistent standards, hey, hey, Christian, hey, Buddhist, hey, whoever you are, if you had consistent standards, then the reasons you have for rejecting other religions would make you reject your own religion. Boom. And that that is actually a whole movement of online atheism called street epistemology. I have a, a video on that. Uh, if you search up Mike Winger street epistemology, you probably find it dealing with the manual for create, creating atheists, which that's exactly what that is. So first, let's deal with the first issue. Is it true that believe that Christians just believe in one more God than the atheists and that that's a small issue? That's a small thing, right? It's just one less God. So this is so weird that this is even being brought up that I have to try to bring a response. Like believing in one God literally is the difference between atheism and monotheism. So... If that's the whole difference, then how can one say you're basically an atheist when the only defining attribute that keeps you from being an atheist is present in your life? Let me give you some examples. You're a bachelor too. I'm just married to one less person than you. No, 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 you're you're not a bachelor. The very defining trait of a bachelor is that you're married. This is kind of a big deal. Or, or if someone says, hey, I'm collecting unemployment, you can collect unemployment too because you just have one more job than me. No, that doesn't work. This is completely irrational. This this is a five-year-old should be able to work through this. But this is actually a very popular atheist argument. I've seen this many, many times in comment sections, in in Twitter posts, especially Twitter. Twitter is, is like where it's at apparently for atheism. And um, yeah, this is a big difference. It's a big difference. One God makes all the difference in the world, right? Like if you're in court and you believe in one more murderer in the courtroom than the other people, well, you're you're saying guilty instead of innocent now. It makes all the difference in the world. All the difference in the world. You know, just name anything in your life. Like, I, you know, you're cancer-free. You just have one more cancer than me. Right? That's, like, this is just, it's, it's dumb. Like, this is just actually dumb, dumb level thinking. It's just snark and shallow thinking. Not only that, but if you do believe in God, it radically affects your entire worldview. Because atheists who say it's just one less God and act like it's a small thing will also go on to talk about the virtues of atheism and how once they shed themselves of their horrific belief in God, they were freed from it. Well, they obviously think belief in God is a big deal when they say things like that. So how can it all of a sudden not be a big deal? It's just snark and shallow thinking. Now let's deal with the second issue, the street epistemology side. And that is that consistent standards would make you reject all religions. Let me explain to you guys how this works. Um, I come to you, let's say I'm the atheist, you're the Christian, and I come to you and I say, I say, Christian, tell me this, why do you reject Thor? Tell me the reasons why you reject Thor. And I start to say things like, well, there's no evidence for Thor. And then you say, aha, and that's why I reject Christianity. And then I say, well, why do you reject Hinduism? And you say, well, because they don't have any sort of real revelation from God. And I say, ha, and that's why I reject Christianity. So I just apply whatever you say and what's, what's interesting about this is this no thinking is required. Whatever you say, like fill in the blank, I'm just going to say that's true about Christianity. This is kind of a blind faith 
kind of way of working through this stuff. It's called the outsider test of faith. And a lot of Christians don't know how to handle it. They don't know how to work through it. And that's okay. I understand that. But let me explain now what some of the differences are between, say, Hinduism, or let's take their example, Thor worship, right? Part of the whole pantheon and believing in Thor and all those different gods. What's the difference between that and Christianity? Here are a few differences that I jotted down, and I've got links in the description I'm going to share with you as well, that let you follow up with these things. Because you're going to be like, Mike, you didn't give details. Well, yes, I did. Hours and hours and hours of details in carefully unpacked theological and apologetic arguments and philosophical arguments for God that are all going to be in the video description. So the first one is cosmological arguments. So cosmological arguments, and, and by the way, let me just preface this. If you're the atheist and you're thinking, Mike, those have all been debunked. Haven't you seen rationality rules? And I'm like, yeah, oh, I've, I've seen it. They haven't been debunked. Like, you're still on the bottom rung, guys. They haven't been debunked. There's a, do a little more research on this, please, I beg you. Because it's, it's the derision towards Christianity that keeps you as an atheist. You won't think deeply about it, because why should you? Because you hate it. I'm, and I know that doesn't represent everybody, but it does represent a lot of the bottom rung atheists, right? Other atheists who are up higher, you'll, you, you could probably agree with me here. Yeah, normal, typical bottom rung internet pop atheism is, is really a lot of it's fueled by bitterness towards religion and towards Christianity in, in particular. And so we have this, oh, that's been refuted. I just, I just run the other way now. Well, there's cosmological arguments, and there's plural. There's a bunch of these, but one example is the Kalam cosmological argument. I have a video in the description where I interviewed Braxton Hunter, and he gave a great explanation going from a simple view of it to a deeper understanding and answering skeptics' objections from the comments during the live stream. By the way, the Kalam cosmological argument, or cosmological arguments in general, they don't work for Thor. So this is a legitimate reason why I can reject Thor but, but embrace monotheism. Right, because the cosmological arguments don't function for pagan deities. They just don't function. These see pagan deities, what we, you know, colloquially put a little G on, the little gods, they just don't have the same kind of being, the nature, or the same kind of ontological status, right, that God, monotheism, presents. So then the arguments that prove one often don't work for the others. Cosmological arguments were for God, not Thor. That's my point. Teleological arguments. This is arguments from design. And you could go two different branches on the teleological side. This is to say biology shows evidence of design and intention. And this is whether or not you believe in evolution. Did you hear that? <laughs> whether or not you believe in evolution. That's a, sep that could be a separate argument. But teleology, a biological design, shows evidence for a creator. But you can also run the argument through the laws of physics and through the constants and qualities that we have in the universe itself. And I have a link in the description where a physicist, Luke Barnes, goes through this argument in detail. Thoughtful, deep. We're going to take you past the bottom rung. At least, if you were still an atheist, you'd be higher up on the rungs at that point. Um, then number three, the moral, so I've given you two arguments. Now, the teleology doesn't work for Thor, but it works for God. Moral arguments, moral arguments, that, that God is the grounding for objective moral values and duties. I have a whole playlist of videos by one of my favorite guys, Dr. William Lane Craig, and he goes through the moral argument. It's like four hours of content, okay? This is going to go deep, and it's going to answer objections, and, 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 and he's so good at explaining this stuff on a level where the rest of us can understand it, but without losing the philosophical um, goodness of it. And so... Yes. Now, now this is where a lot of atheists go, Mike, when you say moral argument for God, what you're really saying is atheists are immoral. And here I'm like, get off the bottom rung, guys. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. Christians are never saying that. But this is the constant. I've had this conversation lots of times. Hey, how do you account for moral values and duties? You're saying I'm immoral. I'm a good person. I'm not saying that. I hate you. you know, I'm like, okay, this is unfortunate. Um, 
that's not what we're saying. Uh, the, the moral argument's a lot smarter and better than that. Actually, I would argue that you are a moral person, maybe not good, but you're at least a moral person, and that that is the evidence that we're presenting for God. At any rate, God can account for this because he is the necessary being. Thor cannot account for this because you can't ground those morals in the person of Thor the way you can with God. So Thor fails the Euthyphro dilemma, whereas God passes it with flying colors. There's also an argument for moral knowledge, which uh, you can also present that's a whole different argument. There's more than one moral argument for God. The argument from beauty, and yeah, you should take the argument from beauty seriously. If objective beauty exists, God exists. Now, I have a link in the description that goes through that in detail. Probably you're not familiar with this argument. It's, it's a, it gets a lot less press than other arguments for God. But there's a link down below where you get a philosophical defense of the argument from beauty. The argument from free will that is coming next week when Tim Stratton comes on and I interview him on Monday. Uh, I, like as if I'm, a, I'm not even going to be on the phone with him. I don't know why I'm doing that. I guess because I was talking to him yesterday on the phone. <laughs> At any rate, I'll deal with that next week, the argument from free will. And yeah, then when I once I've done it, I'll put a link in the description in a week that'll be there as well. The resurrection of Jesus is an argument that works for Christianity, doesn't work for Thor, right? Historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. It doesn't work for Thor. If Jesus rose from the dead, Thor is not a god, okay? It actually works against Thor. So I have a uh, video down below that's over three hours of two historians giving, uh, I think it's over three hours. Anyway, it's a very long video. It's, it's two historians giving, you know, historical evidence, a case for the resurrection of Jesus. And that is also down in the description below. Now, this kind of evidence, you never see other religions marshalling this kind of evidence. Never, ever, ever. No, you don't. You see little snippet things, but you can't go deep. You can't go deep into Islamic prophecy the way you can with the Bible, which is number eight, prophecy. I have my whole evidence for the Bible series. I put that playlist down below. But prophecy fulfills scripture. Excuse me. Prophecy shows that scripture is inspired by God, that he predicts things ahead of time and then later they come to pass. Now, if you think, well, that's just the Bible proving the Bible, you're on the bottom rung. No, it's documents from his history that cover a massive amounts of time written by different authors and we can actually separate the prophetic the prophetic foretelling from the fulfillment that we can confirm through outside sources okay that becomes something very different than the bible proving the bible come up off the bottom rung so comparisons to other religions are great here because islamic prophecy i had a conversation with someone recently where they said there was a convincing islamic prophecy and that this islamic islamic prophecy was that muhammad had prophesied that in the future or in the end times dishes would speak to one another continually. Now, the, the idea is, well, this is satellite dishes. This is a prophecy about, about satellite dishes. Now, I try to have consistent standards. If I saw that prophecy in the Bible, I would never use it because I would say, why on earth would I have thought at the time that this could refer to satellite dishes? This, is, this seems to be a, a modern use of a word that didn't have that ancient use. This is called anachronism, reading into the past something that was never there in the first place. Well, as you read more and more about Muhammad, you realize he thought that birds could talk to people. He said Solomon had conversations with birds. He said that Alexander the Great traveled to the edge of the earth where the sun fell into a pool of mud. And there he met a group of people that lived on the edge of the earth where the sun went into the mud. When Muhammad said that dishes talked, he actually meant dishes talked. What a great way to compare religions and say, ah, for the same reason I reject Islamic prophecy, I accept biblical prophecy because it passes the muster. It passes the standard. So I love the comparisons. Number nine. Yeah, I'm, yeah there's a lot of evidence for Christianity and for God. Number nine, all after one that people don't appreciate very much and they should. Personal experience. 
Now, I have experienced God in my life. He's really, truly changed my life, okay? I don't usually offer that as evidence for you, but it's at least evidence for me. If you were to come to me and I had no idea about any of this evidence, and you said, Mike, why do you accept God and reject Thor? I could say, well, God's changed my life and Thor hasn't. And that's a sufficient evidence. Now, it won't prove it to you. I get that. But at least I should take seriously my own experience with God. And whether or not you believe that I'm in my right mind or whatever else, I should, I should at least take that seriously. And I think that that's very smart to do. But when I'm trying to do apologetics and evangelism with, with evidence, I usually present other things than my personal testimony. Although I wonder if I should present my testimony more in that regard, um, because I am convinced that Jesus really changed my life. And I think my family, even the ones who aren't following the Lord, would probably agree. And that's pretty powerful. Number 10, last one I'll offer, then we'll go on and do more. Like I said, this is going to be a longer video because um, I got a lot to talk about. Because <laughs> as I kept digging in, I was like, oh, there's more I want to share. Um, the, the fact that I have all this evidence for Christianity, this is number 10, is evidence against Thor, is evidence against Hinduism, Buddhism, and even atheism, right? Evidence for one religion is evidence against competing claims. So when I marshal a case for Christianity, not only is that showing Christianity true, it's also invalidating other competing claims. Wherever those claims match Christianity, they may be true, but where they disagree with it, they will then be false. That's just reason. So the bottom line is this, for an informed Christian, the challenge, the outsider test of faith, tell me why you reject Thor and I'll tell you why I reject Christianity. Well, that doesn't work for an informed Christian because the informed Christian's like, well, wait a minute. When I compare my reasons for having Christianity as a uh, truthful thing in my mind, I go, this is true. The reasons I have for that don't work for Thor and in fact work against Thor. You have strengthened my faith. Thank you very much. What a great, what a great thing. The outsider test of faith proves that Christian faith is legitimate. So the, the phrase that we often hear online, we often hear repeated by skeptics and cynics, um, that there is no evidence for God, there's no evidence for the Bible, no evidence for Christianity. It's not only not true, but it reveals something, and this might change our, our approach to those people. It reveals that they have such a shallow understanding of the evidence for God, of the evidence for Christianity, that they are in this incredibly confident state where they feel they can dismissively say that none of it exists. What does that mean? It means maybe we can try to baby step them into seeing the evidence. Start with just one piece of evidence. Pick one of those videos I just I linked down below or one of the books I'm going to put down there and just send it to one person and say, hey, can we just look at this one piece of evidence and spend some time on it? And you want to just put a crack in the dam of that firm feeling that there's no evidence because the most popular level of atheism, pop atheism, really does think that none of these evidences exist or that random YouTubers have um, utterly refuted them with their five-minute videos and so often, when when I watch even, um, what's the guy that does the Crash Course in Philosophy? When I looked at Crash Course in Philosophy's, you know, his treatment of things like the ontological argument or, um, you know, Pascal's wager or these different arguments for God, it's embarrassing. I'm not even a philosopher and I've spent some time on these things and I'm like, this is bad. Like he he didn't even represent it properly. Like that's not even it. So you, you want to find, right, what I'm trying to do here, find the best argument for God, not your worst representation of it. Yeah. All right. So the, um, the article goes on to say, scrolling down. No, nope, that's indoctrination. That's next. The article says, and I'll try to get on your screen here. It's a little hard for me to find. Okay, here we go right here. When, when a religious person stops to consider this, it will be a painful truth for them to realize that their religion is very much the same as those in the past. 
So it will logically follow that their religion is likely the same kind of desperation for supernatural control in the universe. You know what happens is when I stop to realize the evidence for Christianity, real evidence, like documented, philosophical, historical, different kinds of evidences, then I go, wow, it logically follows that Christianity is actually true and not a desperate attempt to control the universe, but rather a realization that God has revealed himself in Christ. And that, that is the most important thing ever. Then he goes on and says, these kinds of simple arguments are what made me seriously struggle to believe in the God of the Bible. That breaks my heart. Sam, that breaks my heart, man. I don't know if there's still an open door for you to reconsider these things, but I hope so. I hope there's an open door because I've just given you a list and there's links in the description. So follow it up. Don't take my summary, okay? Follow up, pick those arguments, whatever's the most interesting to you and start pursuing those things and realize, realize there's more to think about here than what you've realized. You had an unthinking Christianity and then you went and moved to an unthinking atheism through slogans and bad reasoning. And I think that represents a large number of people. All right, let's look at number two. Number two is about indoctrination. And this is a quote also from Richard Dawkins. Second argument from Richard Dawkins. We'll, we'll then move on to other, other top atheists in his view. Do not indoctrinate your children. Teach them how to think for themselves, how to evaluate evidence, and how to disagree with you. Do not indoctrinate them. Teach them how to do those things. Um, then he goes on and says, Dawkins challenges religious people to train their kids in critical thinking instead of in religious tradition. In this way, the child will choose whether or not religion is true and real. Remember this phrase, which is irrational. Well, remember that just. Rather than being constantly told by trusted friends and family that it is. This is a challenge to religious people because religion continues almost entirely because of the indoctrination of children. Children are, the easy, are easy targets because they trust that the adults around them have life figured out and are vastly more intelligent than them. Dawkins is pointing out that if we train children to think critically rather than indoctrinate them, we will have an atheist society in a single generation. And here's a little preview of Frederick Nietzsche. Big mustache. All right, we'll come back to that in a minute. <laughs> okay, let's talk about this argument. It's, ba it's ultimately based on an assumption. I see an assumption here. It, that is, the assumption is, I don't know if you caught it, that, that there are two mutually exclusive options for parents. Either you teach them that a religion is true or you teach them to think critically. And the two are incompatible. That's the assumption. Now, this is just a purely, um, this is a Richard Dawkins assumption, okay? This is like a Dawkins thing, right? Richard Dawkins is one of the guys who's like, religion's like one of the worst things in the world, and da 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 And that's not true. It's not historically true. It's not sociologically true. But it's true in his head. And so that changes the way you view religion. You view religion through such lenses of bitterness, all religion, right? All religion. And there's plenty of people like this that feel the same way, that you can't reason carefully about it. It's like if you've ever had someone you really hated, and then they did something very nice. And you had to find a reason why the nice thing was actually bad. I remember a, a video an atheist did on me uh, not too long back. I did a video on uh, Steven Anderson, who's a, um, who's a total wackadoodle. Um, and, and everybody should not follow his stuff. And he he's, anyway, I did a whole video on it. And uh, Steven Anderson recalls for all kinds of horrible treatment to homosexual people. And he believes that they're reprobate and they can never be saved. And I'm just... It's so unbiblical, it's so ungodly, and it's so harmful. So I did a video on it. Well, the, before I did the video, I had atheists reaching out to me like, Mike, you're going to comment on Steven Anderson? You're going to comment on Steven Anderson? Like, you could tell it was that kind of attitude. Like, you're going to say something? Huh? You conservative nut jab. And, uh, and so I did do a video, um, not because of them, but because of Steven Anderson, and because it did need comment. 
I did the video and then I had an atheist respond to my video after asking me for it, where I condemned and condemned Steve Anderson. And the response was some popular atheist, I don't remember his name, doing a video explaining how Mike Winger might look like a good guy here, but just so you know, he's just as crazy as Steven Anderson. He's just the nicer looking version of crazy. Let's make sure we know he's still a villain. And that's the whole response, right? Like you can't, I, well, I can't do anything possibly positive because I'm just that kind of villain. And I'm just like, come on guys. Like this is revealing more about you than it is about me. That's for sure. I'm not offended. I, I don't care, but I think it's revealing. So let's talk about this. Is it possible to teach critical thinking and the truth of a religion? Yes, why not? The only reason why you could say it's not, why you would say this dichotomy exists, this mutually exclusive category of teach religion or teach critical thinking, why you could keep those apart is only if every religion is false and based on lies. If every religion is false and based on lies, then you can't teach critical thinking and religion because the adopting this is adopting um, irrational thinking. But that's only true if atheism is true. Do you catch the circularity of this? If atheism is true, you have a choice to teach your kids critical thinking or religion. If atheism is not true, you can absolutely teach religion and critical thinking at the same time. And that is, of course, circular reasoning. This isn't an argument for atheism. This is an argument from atheism. It assumes atheism is true. Circular arguments fail. That's kind of like a nice simple rule of life. Generally true, circular arguments fail. Now, indoctrination has different definitions. Here's one definition of indoctrination, and I'll put it on screen. Uh, teaching someone to fully accept the ideas, opinions, and beliefs of a particular group and not to consider the other ideas, opinions, and beliefs uh, or the ideas of other groups. So don't even think about it. Just adopt it, believe what we're saying, don't think about or even consider other people's ideas. Now, if that's what you mean by indoctrination, then... Um, then that's something that happens on a human level. It's not a religious thing. It certainly happens in an atheist community where we won't even really consider the arguments of other people being presented. We'll just look for the quickest rebuttal and run away from them as quick as possible. And I'm, I know this doesn't represent all atheists. I think it represents the majority of those I see online though. And that's why I'm doing this video. I, I wanna, maybe this feels like a rude wake up call, but I want it to be a wake up call. You aren't even thinking, like you think you're thinking, but you're not that you're not seriously considering. All you're doing is grabbing and looking at arguments and Christian things and religious things in order to find something to complain about or deride, not to really understand and to process. And that is indoctrination. Now, if you mean uh, by indoctrination just teaching your kids things, yeah, we should all do indoctrination in that sense, but really nowadays most people mean something else by it. They mean kind of like thought control that prevents people from reasoning. And that I'm opposed to, which should be obvious, should be obvious. I'm opposed to that. Many Christian parents are, uh, although it's a problem amongst many Christian parents, just like it's a problem amongst many atheist parents, Hindu parents, Buddhist parents, whatever. It's just a human problem is that many of us don't do critical thinking. For a resource on this, let me point you guys to Natasha Crane. Natasha Crane is fantastic for parents who want to help their kids learn how to critically think. And not only that, she'll even teach you how to critically think. I have a link to her blog down below, which is a very popular blog, well-known blog. And she has a resource called The Fallacy Detective. It's a book for like five, six-year-olds on how to teach them how to do fallacies. Yeah, well, this is a Christian, catch this, guys, atheists, be proud of us, right? This is a Christian resource where she's giving other parents the ability to teach their kids how to work through fallacies and work through them properly, not like rationality rules on YouTube where it's not right. <laughs> it's like, that's not how the fallacy works. At any rate, 
I think that uh, you guys should check out her resources, especially if you're a parent. So look at this also. Speaking of critical thinking, um, and by the way, Christian Christianity has had some of the greatest critical minds of all time, right? And most of the great thinkers in the past have been religious people. There's, there's just no correlation between being religious and not being able to think. Now, the atheist will be like, well, you're just being inconsistent. But that's your assumption, right? That's your assumption. If atheism is true, they're being inconsistent. But if atheism is not true, if you're trying to make a case for atheism, which doesn't assume its truthfulness, then you can't say that, right? This can't be part of your case for atheism. Speaking of critical thinking, let's go back to the article and notice what he said about the conclusion. He says, the child will choose whether or not religion is true and real, rather than constantly being told by trusted family and, and friends that it is. Kids don't choose what's true and real, right? None of us choose what's true and real because we believe in objective truth and objective reality, which means I'm discovering truth. I'm not choosing it. Now, if kids could choose what's true, indoctrination would be entirely appropriate. I could just tell you it's true, and then you choose it, and now it's true because you chose it. So all that would matter is getting people to choose things. But this is, and you could say it's sloppy writing, but I think there actually is maybe some hints of relativism that's going on here. And relativism, the way it works is it invades pieces of our worldview and makes us inconsistent. So we need to find where it's invading us and we need to root it out. Yeah, you don't get to choose what's true. It's, it's true or false. You want to discover it. We discover truth. We don't choose it. And that, that's why I'm a Christian <laughs> and why I'm not a progressive Christian. <laughs> um, Frederick Nietzsche has a um, argument as well that the article provides. Okay, here's Frederick Nietzsche with his famous mustache. And um, very impressive, I must admit. Very impressive. I, I just, how do you keep the food out of that? I don't, mine's already getting too long. <laughs> uh, Frederick Wilhelm Nietzsche was a German philosopher, the article says, cultural critic, poet, philologist, and I don't remember what a philologist is. Is that like a philosopher? I mean, the study of... Philo could be love, philosophy, I don't, wisdom, I don't know. Um, and Latin and Greek scholar whose work has exerted a profound influence on Western philosophy and modern intellectual history. And here's a quote from Friedrich Nietzsche. He says, I, and, and it's probably Friedrich Nietzsche, you know, I'm, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but I have not come to know atheism as a result of logical reasoning. Remember this, guys. I have not come to know atheism as a result of logical reasoning, and still less as an event of my life. So it's not experience, and it's not reason. In me, it is a matter of instinct. Now, this is considered an argument now for atheism, and here's the argument. Atheism is instinctual. You are naturally atheist, and so, therefore, you should stay an atheist, because it's a natural thing. Let's read it. Atheism is completely natural. A primary tool of critical thought is to remember that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Bottom rung atheism, guys. I have a whole video on that in the description. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. I'm going to talk about it today, but I have a whole video on it. It's not as smart as you think it is. When someone tells you that they saw a velociraptor in the forest, you're going to need evidence to believe them. I agree. Their claim is pretty extraordinary, so you would require some outstanding evidence for their claim. Well, I don't, know, I don't even know what outstanding means. I would require evidence for their claim. Religion is treated the exact same way. If a Muslim man tries to convert you to Islam, you're going to need some evidence for his claims about the truth of his religion. Yeah, I agree. That's an important point about religion, that the burden of proof is on them to prove their fanciful ideas. Well, that's also true, but it's also true of atheism. The only reason people are convinced so easily about the madness of religion 
is that their parents or friends tell them about it, and they trust those people. I believed in Christianity for a long time. Catch this, guys. The only reason, the only reason people are convinced so easily about the madness of religion is that their parents or friends tell them about it, and they trust those people. I believed in Christianity for a long time, and when I had the strongest doubts, now we're getting a mind uh, inside the mind of Sam as he was going through his doubts. When he had those strongest doubts, here's what he would do. He would remember that his parents, friends, fellow churchgoers, and extended family wouldn't lie to me, he says, about something so important. Atheism is instinctual, but so is trust, which makes his entire argument self-refuting. We'll come back to that in a second. Um, all right, we'll come back. There's another argument from Frederick Nietzsche, but... Okay, this is this is confused. Um, there are two different issues going on in this in this argument in number three here. Atheism is instinctual. One is that atheism itself is like an instinctual, natural thing, and the implication he doesn't say it. The implication is that we should believe whatever comes naturally. Okay, that's a problematic claim, but that's that seems to be the argument. The second issue is that belief in God requires extraordinary evidence, which he never defines, he never explains, and nobody ever does. Um, I've asked, I've asked, like lots of atheists ask, explain what you mean by extraordinary evidence, give examples, and I don't get them, I have a whole video on that, like I said. Anyhow, the notice the double standard, atheism is supposed to be believed without reason or evidence, that's argument number three, yet we should only believe in God if we have, quote, extraordinary evidence. Okay, stop for a minute, this is like religious brainwashing to the max, you should believe atheism with no evidence and without logical reasoning. But you should only believe religion if you have extraordinary evidence, whatever that is. This is not critical thinking. This Sometimes atheists realize that they don't have what's technically a religion. And so they feel like because religion is irrational, they're automatically rational. And it causes people to not be reflective on their own thought process. Let's handle these issues now. Is atheism actually instinctual? Meaning that if people just grew up in a social void, they would become atheists naturally. Um, this seems to be false. There are sociological studies that reveal that we have, and I'm gonna be careful how I word this, a natural tendency and receptivity to belief in supernatural agency. That is to say that religious beliefs come naturally to human beings. Now this can be overcome with education and cultural environment. Meaning that you train, generally speaking, there's always exceptions, maybe Nietzsche was an exception, but generally speaking, you have to train people to become atheists. They will naturally believe in some kind of supernatural agency beyond the world, God, gods, you name it. They're naturally going to do that. So that's a problem because that means that if the argument is about what's instinctual and children have these natural disposi disposition towards religious belief, then that's an argument for Christianity or for theism or for at least religion, right? It's at least an argument for religion and against atheism. This argument actually backfires on itself and reveals a, a um, double standard of irrational thinking. Extraordinary evidence required here, no evidence required here. So is atheism instinctual? Probably not. Um, but what if we held that standard consistently and we said, you should only believe what comes natural? Well, we're going to believe all kinds of, well, it's not that we're going to believe all kinds of weird things. It's that we're going to lose all kinds of important and true things that we do believe now. If we hold that, we believe what's instinctual, right? Whatever doesn't have to be trained, that's what I should believe. Well, then why, why would anybody believe in evolution, right? Uh, whether you believe it or not, uh, uh, why, why would you? Like you, 
for, for the atheist especially, now there's Christians who believe in evolution and Christians who don't, but for the atheist, it's like just about all of them believe firmly in the theory of evolution, of, you know, especially common descent and abiogenesis that kind of come with the package of atheism. You kind of have, you have to have that theory. It has to happen naturally without intervention of any supernatural thing. So you're sort of stuck on that view, whether you like it or not. It's the only game in town. But you don't believe this because it came natural to you, right? You were educated into it. You were taught it. You didn't, like, a four-year-old, you're like, I'll bet there's a bunch of transitional fossils in the ground. Like, you didn't you didn't think about this. Like, I suppose that there are, I think that uh, the RNA theory of abiogenesis is really very likely. You know, you didn't, yeah, you didn't think any of those things. Um, there would be no Copernican view of the universe. You wouldn't be thinking that the sun and the earth are flying through space really fast and the earth's going around the sun. You wouldn't be thinking these things naturally. You only get them through education. And you can call that indoctrination, but that's only if it comes without critical thinking and it doesn't have to. So yeah, I think that the current growth of atheism, the spike in growth of atheism that has happened recently is due to the promulgation of atheism in our universities as well as online in fact when i started doing youtube videos a few years back five years ago six years ago when i started kind of like first putting content out i would get atheists who commented on my videos who do you think you are atheists own youtube atheists own the internet this is our domain and it was and it was kind of true <laughs> in a lot of ways that uh that yeah but but now christian you know christian channels are breaking through we're getting more information out there and we're kind of dispelling some of the content that's been out there. So here's the problems with this claim. One, it's self-refuting. Since atheism isn't generally a natural thing for people, it's not. That's not true. So then it refutes itself. You would then have to be religious of some kind if you thought what's natural is what we should believe. Number two, it's an inconsistent standard because they only they only want to apply believe what's natural in religious contexts and then they want to use it for atheism, which doesn't work. But they don't want to apply it to all the other things they believe. Right, their understanding of gravity, their 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 understanding that planes can fly. Like you wouldn't naturally think a giant metal object can fly. Like you had to you had to learn that. It's not natural. Finally, let's come to the second issue. Does belief in God require extraordinary evidence? And again, I have a whole video on this with more detail, but let me just say the short answer is no. And the reason is because you don't know what you mean by extraordinary evidence. And uh, this was shown in my debate with Matt Dillahunty, where he can't even give an example of of the kind of evidence let me put the question the way I'll, I'll put it to you guys if hypothetically jesus existed two thousand years ago died on the cross was buried in a tomb rose from the dead and he was physically alive let's pretend that happened historically what kind of evidence hypothetically would you look back and expect to find that's a huge key here that they always ignore expect to find when you look at the historical record what sorts of evidence would you expect to find if it was true? That's how you should start every investigation. If this is true, what kind of evidence would I expect to find and what evidence is being offered? And then is it more likely that it's true than false based on that evidence? That's critical thinking, right? Now, with the evidence for the resurrection of Christ, I've asked on Twitter, and I, this is what I did my video on. I was like, what evidence would you guys call extraordinary? And they, I got answers like, if we found a Bible on the moon with video footage or images packed into the Bible, placed there by aliens that show and prove that Jesus really came out of the tomb and was alive afterwards. And I'm like, that's what you'd expect? Like, sure, that would be great evidence. I, I agree, that'd be, but you wouldn't expect it. Like, if the resurrection's true, you wouldn't historically expect to have to have aliens in the universe who observed it, recorded it, documented it, and then preserved it on the moon for us to find later. Like, that's irrational. 
And that's the problem with the extraordinary evidence claim. It's always irrational. Let's apply it to the Velociraptor scenario. He, he says, if you saw a Velociraptor, I would need outstanding evidence, he says. Well, I just need evidence, okay? Look, if you have video footage and I have reason to think it's not been tampered with, and, and why do I expect video footage, pardon me, for the Raptor but not for Jesus? Because there were no video cameras. Like, you don't expect video footage where there are no video cameras. This is kind of like thinking 101, right? Just normal thinking here. But I do, I have video evidence, or you could show me bones from the raptor, DNA that shows that it's fresh. You could bring other eyewitnesses who have no apparent reason to lie about it and seem to be confirming with slightly varied accounts of the same event to show that they're actually giving their own account. I have some of that in the New Testament. I have this stuff with Jesus. So yeah, that's normal evidence though. Uh, for us today, normal evidence is video footage. Normal evidence is, is eyewitness accounts. Back in the day, we have textual evidence for Jesus. We have archaeological evidence. We have eyewitness evidence. And we have good historical and critical uh, research that goes and brings it all back to the first century, to the time of Christ. And things like the conversion of Paul and all this. Anyway, many of you have heard this stuff before. There's content on the resurrection down below. And basically, yeah, you just need normal evidence to prove any claim. Normal evidence. It just has to be good evidence, decent evidence. All right. Next issue here. He says that in his own journey, um, and I'll put it on screen for you. I believed in Christianity for a long time. And when I had the strongest doubts, I would remember. Now, I want you to fill in the blank here. If you're a Christian... When you have the strongest doubts, what do you remember? When you have the strongest doubts, what do you remember? Do you, like Sam, remember that your parents, fellow friends, fellow churchgoers, and extended family wouldn't lie to you about something so important? I don't. When I had my strongest doubts, which I did, when I had my strongest doubts, which were pretty strong, losing sleep, I did not remember that my pastors, friends, leaders, that they wouldn't lie to me. What I thought was, how would they even know? How do they know it's true? What I thought was, is there historical evidence for the resurrection? Yeah, I didn't go into it knowing that there had anybody had even studied this. Like, I just went into it and I was shocked that for 2,000 years ago, we had such great evidence. I mean, great evidence to support it. I was I was shocked that there were these thoughtful arguments for the evidence for the resurrection. I, I, uh, for the evidence for the existence of God as well. Also for uh, prophecy in the scripture. A very neglected, um, prophetic, apologetic that um, I've done content on myself. So I was surprised by all that stuff. But I also go, yeah, but I also have experiences with God that do make more sense thinking that they were real experiences with God than they do thinking that I'm crazy because I don't have these kinds of experiences with everything. At any rate, I didn't remember that other people told me it was true. I didn't remember that. And oddly enough, he contradicts himself by saying, atheism is instinctual, therefore you should believe it. But he also says trust is instinctual, but he wants you to reject that. Because it's an inconsistent standard. Don't trust those people. I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying the standard here is inconsistent. It's not right. What's missing from Sam's reasons for why he left the faith, he didn't stop and ask, have I experienced God? That's kind of a big deal, right? Do I have historical, prophetic, philosophical arguments for God, for the evidence of Jesus, for the evidence of, of the Bible being God's word? Again, we see an inconsistent standard here. He went from a Christian who didn't think critically, Sam, forgive me, I'm not trying to insult you. I'm not. But you went from a Christian who didn't think critically to an atheist who doesn't think critically. I'm not trying to marginalize you. Um, that's just what your article represents. I hope you'll change your mind. And if you're watching this a year from now, maybe Sam's changed his mind. Okay, let's not hold it against him. I just thought he'll probably watch this because he's, he's in the video, right? So 
maybe a, a chance to talk to him a little bit about it. And if you want to talk to me, Sam, give me a call. Uh, actually, go to thebiblethinker.org, send me a message, and we'll get, in, we'll get in touch with each other. So the straw man of Christianity in argument number three, to conclude it, is that the only reason to be a Christian is because your parents, friends, and church say so. And by the way, my parents were not following Christ. My father was the first one to try to talk me out of my Christian faith. <laughs> and, uh, and, and as I increasingly became a, a stronger Christian growing up, um, there was increasing resistance to me being one in the first place. And most of my friends were not really Christians at all. At any rate, that's just my story. But um, number four, let's look at argument number four. Christianity was from the beginning. Oh, let me put it on the screen. Here we go. This argument is going to be about religion being desperate. Desperate. And here we go. The quote from Frederick Nietzsche is, Christianity was from the beginning, essentially and fundamentally, life's nausea and disgust with life. Merely concealed behind, masked by, and dressed up as faith in another or better life. Now, to the informed Christian, you immediately recognize this quote as being pure mockery that is utterly baseless. But if you are a pop atheist, you think that's exactly what it is. So let's talk about it in more detail. Or maybe you're just a Christian prone to bitterness. I, I think those who, I'm to speak pastorally here, those who are prone towards bitterness, towards uh, towards leaders, towards other people in their lives, they will be drawn to this kind of argumentation. It just fits their mentalities. Okay, religion is desperation. He says, I have also noticed that this, uh, this painful truth about religion, it's made up of people who are intensely afraid of reality. That's you guys. You Christians out there, you're just intensely afraid of reality and of the truth of the human condition. And I want to, I'll just preface this. Look at how he assumes atheism to prove atheism. This is another circular argument, right? Because this isn't reality unless atheism is true. So we're intensely afraid of reality and the truth of the human condition. Religion comes from our hatred for our loathsome existence and our deep desire to deny the actuality of death and future loss. However, if we can be united in our disassociation, Disassoci dissociation sorry, from real life, we can be happy. We can call this dissociation faith. I'm always enamored by the weird definitions of faith that atheists will offer, ignoring you know actual linguistics, use in Greek and Hebrew in the Bible, or in actual careful, thoughtful Christian theology. Faith is just trust, right? It's, it's, it's a choice to trust. But we'll call this dissociation faith, and together we can be free from the horror of existence. Religion allows people to forget that we are on a rock zipping through the cosmic abyss at hundreds of kilometers per second and that eventually our sun won't even exist. Our planet will not even be a memory. And this truth is something that people desperately scurry away and hide from. The reality is all we have is each other. Connection and this life, anything more is hopeful delusions. I'm going to argue that this isn't even something you have on atheism. But at any rate, let's look at this in more detail. And let's respond to this argument that religion is desperation. I'm going to walk through this kind of like piece by piece and unpack it. And if you find this argument impressive, I hope that this video is helpful for you. I've also noticed that this, this painful truth about religion is made up of people who are intensely afraid of reality and of the truth of the human condition. Now, I asked you guys to notice that that phrase there, that it assumes that atheism is true in order to prove that it's true. This is the absolute best example of circular reasoning right? You Christians, you know how I know you're wrong? Because you're desperately denying the truth of atheism. That's how I know. Think about it. Best argument.
best argument. Top atheist, best argument. Coming from Frederick Nietzsche, brilliant guy. But brilliant people can be stupid too. And a lot of them are. There's brilliant people on every side of every argument. If you believe something wrong, there's a brilliant person who agrees with you. Always. So, that just doesn't help. <laughs> so, how though does Christianity handle the human condition? Are we really intensely afraid of reality and the truth of the human condition? Actually, Christianity, unlike, say, New Age beliefs or the beliefs that we're all divinity and we're just sort of discovering our, you know, like Christian science type stuff, that type of thing is very different than Christianity. Christianity is a sober view of the human condition, right? Because all religions aren't the same. Christianity says you are sinful, you are fallen, and you have judgment coming upon you because of your wickedness. This is a sober and scary reality. Like this is hardly a make-believe fairy tale to just make everyone feel good. It's a sober reality about judgment coming upon mankind. But it also teaches that humans are made in God's image and that we have this incredible value and we have this incredible potential to know God and to, to love God and to love others. And we have this incredible daunting responsibility before God one day for all those things. It teaches that God loves us, but there is only one way, Jesus. It's exclusive. This is not something people like. Even Even Christians will try to get around it sometimes to try to get away from the exclusivity of, of having faith in Christ um, or the idea of hell. I mean, there's obviously where Christianity has this concept of hell, right? This is not a fairy tale that was made to just cause people to think happy thoughts. It's just not, right? That would be a more new age type view of things or Christian science. Like I said, these other views, they're a more fairy tale style religion. Okay, that's, that's the view, not Christianity. Here's a question though. How does atheism do the same thing? How does atheism handle the human condition and the reality of what's going on? Is it possible that atheism is actually afraid of reality and that atheists are denying the truth of the human condition? I think it is, and I can give a case for it. In atheism, you don't have any real grounding for believing in moral values and duties. This has caused many atheists to deny the reality of moral values and duties and then play weird word games about subjective and objective. But basically, it just causes them in that worldview to deny that those moral values and duties are real, that it's truly always wrong to torture a baby for fun. Like, you can't really say this on atheism. It's always wrong, no matter who agrees or disagrees, it's always wrong to torture a baby for fun. That's true. An atheist is kind of at a place where their worldview is forcing them to deny that scary reality. Why is it scary? Because it also means that things I'm doing are wrong. No consciousness. There's many atheists that would actually agree and say, like like Sam Harris, they say, hey, consciousness is an illusion. You don't really exist. You just think you do. Who's the you thinking you do? I don't know because that would require a you. It's, it's self-refuting. But at any rate, you don't exist. And you're just, you're just having a delusion that you are, which again is self-refuting. But guys like Daniel Dennett, atheist philosopher, would agree there is no consciousness on atheism. I think atheism is denying the obvious here. I think they're denying reality in order to support atheism. I think they have a belief in atheism that forces them to reject obvious truths about reality. Moral values and duties, consciousness. How about purpose? True purpose. We, we have a real purpose and a, a function in life. Now that can be scary because if you have a purpose, you can be failing that purpose. But on atheism, you must deny your purpose. Beauty, no real beauty on atheism, objective beauty. Ultimately, they're gonna deny a lot of things because they deny God. That atheism is the, is the fuel in the fire that is burning up consciousness and morality and purpose and beauty. I think that this argument backfires as well. It's a painful truth about atheism. It's made up of people who are, I wouldn't say they're intensely afraid of reality, but I would say they are rejecting reality and the truth of the human condition and that atheism is driving them to do it. Right? Even Richard Dawkins, the biologist, says that you, when you're doing biological work, you have to constantly remind yourself 
that even though everything you're looking at appears really well designed, it's not designed. Like you have to keep telling yourself this. You must indoctrinate yourself against the obvious thing you're seeing. Let's go on. He then describes religion and says it comes from, catch this, religion's origin. It comes from our hatred for our loathsome existence and our deep desire to deny the actuality of death and of future loss. Yet, yet atheism also has a rejection of future loss, which is hell and judgment and standing before God. I've met atheists who are very happy at the idea that they, that they will have no eternal life because they think it would be unpleasant, especially hell, or they have weird views of heaven. Like they think heaven would be bad and boring and they don't want to be there. And I just think you're, you're not really not really thinking about that like you, you maybe you don't maybe your view of heaven is like that you know harps and clouds and singing 24 7 um and that's that's yeah, that's from bugs bunny cartoons when you were a kid like that's not <laughs> that's not from scripture so at any rate the the denial of hell and of judgment is a great comfort to many atheists it's a great comfort to them so this argument works both ways as well it, it can work both ways but does religion actually come from my hatred for my loathsome existence and my deep desire to deny the actuality of death and future loss. Uh, no, Christianity comes from obvious facts about God and morality, we, which we would call natural revelation, right? You can arrive at that through critical thinking. And two, special revelation through Jesus and the Bible, which can be historically proven and critically looked at, textually proven. There's actually a whole uh, area of research that's just like the the textual connections in scripture about the unity of the bible that goes even beyond my jesus in the old testament stuff at any rate you have a special revelation of god in christ uh, and that's also recorded in the scripture which means that christianity is based on the idea that god has revealed himself to us and we can confirm this by looking at these sort of uh, miraculous elements in the religion it's also based on real personal experience which is a good argument for god it just doesn't convince you because you didn't have that experience like I did. Okay, but it but it should be good for me and those who've had it. And those who haven't had it should ask for it and seek it and ask God to reveal himself to them. So let's have fair scales. Is there some loss that atheists might be trying to deny? Yes. Judgment and control over their lives that God would have. Is there some loss that Christians could be trying to deny? Yes. They, they could be trying to deny that they're going to die and then cease to exist. But does that mean they are? because there is some loss that could be there. No, there's evidential reasons to support Christianity. This argument assumed atheism was true and concluded it was true. Now let's read this in more detail because I want to read again the part where he describes Christianity. The description of Christianity here reveals more about the atheist, Sam, than it, and, and many atheists online, than it does about Christianity. So looking for the word however. There it is. However, if we can be united in our dis dissociation from re real life, assumes atheism is true, we can be happy. We can call this a dissociation faith and together we can be free from the horror of existence. Religion allows people to forget that we are on a rock zipping through the cosmic abyss at hundreds of kilometers per second and that eventually our sun won't even exist and our planet will not be a memory, will not even be a memory. And this truth is something that people desperately scurry away and hide from. Now, let me just say that does not describe Christianity. What he's described there is more like Buddhism. Buddhism does actually have a view that they want to um, escape, right? Escape. That is the goal of Buddhism and different branches in Hinduism. The idea is this whole experience is torture. And we want to get out of it by not caring about it, and by transcending it, and by escaping this reality. And then you just kind of stop existing. That is the goal in Buddhism. And there's different branches in Buddhism, but that is the goal in Buddhism, at least in a, a prominent number of Buddhists. Okay, that would, that would be a desire to escape the horror of existence. I get that. However, 
However, this is not Christianity in any way, shape, or form. Christians are very sober and real about suffering and about the difficulties of life and about how hard it is and how bad things are. That's definitely true. So, yeah, Christians are not to dissociate from reality. We recognize it's all going to burn. You may have heard that phrase before. It's all going to burn, man. It's all going to burn. We just add, in addition to the, to the temporal and quick-burning nature of life, we add that there is accountability for this life and there are eternal consequences for it as well, positive and negative. And I think that um, the question you have to ask is, is there evidential support for that? Is there reason to believe that? You can't just purely assert that it's false. It's just circular reasoning again. Finally, he concludes with this phrase. Look at how the atheist describes reality here. The reality is, all we have is each other, connection and this life, anything more is hopeful delusions. Is there evidence supported for this? No, it's pure assertion. It's indoctrination based on the definition I offered earlier. It is not critical thinking. That's all we have. However, there's a problem. On atheism, we don't have each other. We don't have connection. And we don't really have this life because on atheism, I think the consistent atheist would say that I'm not really here. In fact, if you want to grant consciousness, I think consciousness itself, human consciousness, is an argument for God's existence, a strong one. Right? But, but if, I'm just, if I'm just a meat robot, if I'm just brain and chemicals firing, then, then I'm not even the same Mike who started recording this video. I'm the same. It's not even a consistent. I don't continue to even exist from second to second. I'm just the firing of chemicals and electrons in my mind. I, I'm not even a me. So we don't have each other on atheism. I think that that's a hopeful delusion on atheism. Um, number five. Okay, this is the hardest argument. Absolutely the most difficult one. And it comes from Epicurus. And I don't want to joke about this. The other ones were cringeworthy arguments, but they're common, so I want to deal with them. This one is a very difficult argument, and it's also incredibly common, probably the, the, most, the strongest and most common argument against God. It is the argument about evil. So let's read it. And however, I'll preface it with this. This version of the argument of evil is like the most cringy version of it, but I'm going to talk about it in more detail and give it more respect than that. Okay, so Epicurus was an ancient Greek philosopher as well as the founder of the school of philosophy called Epicureanism. Only a few fragments and letters of Epicurus's 300 work, written works remain. And here's the quote from Epicurus. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's not omnipotent because he doesn't have the power to do it. If he's able but not willing, then he is malevolent. I would, I would argue against that and I will in a moment. But if he's both able and willing, then whence cometh evil? There's a whole actual argument in response to that, uh, interestingly enough. Um, is he neither able nor willing, then why call him God? Okay, the argument is that God can't be, either, he, either he's not good or he's not powerful. And it's impossible for God to be good and powerful at the same time because he would have stopped all this evil stuff that goes on. So this is the problem of evil. Let's read Sam's entry on it. Apologists and theologists, theologists, alike have been grappling with the problem of evil for nearly a thousand years, and I'll tell you why. Listen to his interpretation of the scenario. It's because it's a paradox that can not be solved. Paradoxes, such as the problem of evil, clearly show us that the concept of God is contradictory in and of itself and therefore is impossible. It's not even possible. It's not logically possible. Religious people will say that God is outside of space and time and doesn't have to follow the natural laws of reality so he can deny logic. 
I just want to smack my forehead several times during this. Again, this is the worst version of the problem of evil. I'll deal with it more seriously, though. The only problem with that is logic is not a natural law of space and time. It's a law of reasoning that applies to concepts. And that's why the problem of evil remains a common source of doubt for religious people. Logic can't be pushed to the side. Religious people will have to explain why God is in contradiction with his own attributes. Because he's either impotent, he doesn't have the power, he's malevolent, he's evil, or he's apathetic to the suffering of his creatures, therefore evil. Or he doesn't exist. Applying Occam's razor, it would be reasonable to say that he doesn't exist. If I had a dollar for every time people wrongly applied Occam's razor on the internet... I would be wealthy. <laughs> uh, okay, so like I said, there's, this is a cringe version of it. Let's deal with that, but let's also deal with it in more detail at the same time. Um, whenever you're given a dilemma, this is a dilemma. Actually, it's a quadrilemma, right? You're given four options and you're being told these are your only options. The first thing you need to ask is things like, do I actually have other options? Are these really my only four options? Look, you either give me $50 or you give me $100. It's up to you. Okay, are those really my only two options? And in that case, obviously, no. So let's look at this again and, and just ask, is there another option? Um, how about this? How about a very biblical option, which is that God allows evil temporarily and he brings goods out of that scenario. He's accomplishing good things during the time where evil's going on. He's working it together for good, like Romans 8.28 says. And that he will put a, an eventual stop to evil. And then there will be a new heaven and new earth wherein righteousness dwells. This is a major theme in the scripture. God using evil for good temporarily and then, and then bringing about an ultimate, wonderful, permanent state where there's no evil. In fact, there are philosophers that will argue that the only way to have the optimal world is to first have a world or a, a, a season, a time, where you have a suboptimal world so that suffering can exist. And then later you have your optimal world because you need benef there's benefits that come in suffering and you need to carry those into that eternal world. And I think there's a strong argument that can be made for that. Oddly enough, it's so biblical. That's what's trippy. It's so biblical. There's so many scriptures. I talk about them all the time. About God using our suffering. About God working all things together for good. About how your character is being changed by the things you go through. All that kind of thing. And you believe this too. You probably do already. That there's hard times in your life you went through that you look back on. And you would have wished them away if you could have. But you look back on it and you go, man, I'm so grateful for what I learned through that. I'm so grateful for the good that came out of that. And there's other times you can't do that, right? You don't know what good came out of it. I'm not saying you can always figure it out. In fact, I'll argue against that. But at least you know it's possible, right? It's possible. And if it's possible that God might be doing something good through allowing the suffering and evil in the world temporarily, if that's even possible, then the logical problem of evil fails completely. And it has failed. The logical problem of evil is not used by pretty much any philosophers at all right now, right? Atheist philosophers. Atheist philosophers don't use the logical problem of evil, which is what he's presenting here. They don't use it at all. It's the worst, it's the worst argument, uh, worst way to present the argument from evil. So you're given a dilemma. The dilemma is, are these my only options? And the answer is, no, they're not. It could just be that God will eventually stop evil. God is all-powerful. God is all-good. God is allowing evil. Therefore, he must have a reason, and he must be putting it to an end at some point. Both of those things are taught in Christianity. It may follow that if there's a true religion, It'll be religion that offers a solution to the problem of evil because it's a significant issue. And religion, uh, Christianity in particular, does offer a solution to the problem of evil. Buddhism does not, for instance. Thor does not offer a solution to the problem of evil. There isn't a theodicy on Thor. By the way, the, the, the let me talk about theodicies for a minute. A theodicy 
is an attempt to explain the problem of evil. It's something like like the author said, it's been going on forever and ever, right? For thousands of years, they've been talking about theodicies, explaining the problem of evil. What, what Sam doesn't realize is that a lot of the theodicies are actually pretty successful in different areas. And I would say, I think I like a cumulative, cumulative response to the problem of evil that is gathering multiple theodicies it's okay to have multiple explanations for an event. I'm going I'm to have multiple ways of explaining why different evils are going on in the world. And I'm going to offer some of them to you today. Here is some of those things. Soul building. There is a soul building theodicy and philosophers have spent a lot of work on this. And basically the idea is that suffering in, it causes growth of character. It causes opportunities to express courage. It allows for the opportunity to, to express the greatest kinds of love and to do things like forgive. Like if there wasn't any kind of evil or suffering in the world, then forgiveness wouldn't happen. Yet forgiveness is one of the most beautiful and wonderful goods out there. My, I'm so grateful. Like I'm, I love God a lot more because of the forgiveness I've received in Christ than I would if he had just made me in heaven perfect. I just do. Like there's a good that's coming out of the whole scenario of fall and forgiveness. So we wouldn't have this without suffering. You wouldn't grow without suffering. And children who live lives with no suffering end up being lousy adults. And we know this. <laughs> Maybe you are this. <laughs> and, and that's just the reality is we've got to go through hard times. Man, my allergy's kicking up. Got to go through hard times in order to have godly character. That's just part of what happens. And the scripture, the Bible abounds with this sort of teaching. This is thoroughly entrenched in the Christian belief system. Is that your suffering brings about goods. Okay, that's the soul-building theodicy. It would explain a lot of the suffering that goes on, but not all of it, I don't think. Maybe it could explain all of it. I don't know. Um, anyway, the free will theodicy is also there. And guys like um, Alvin Plantinga, brilliant, highly respected philosopher, has offered a free will theodicy. Next Monday, I'll deal with Tim Stratton. will offer one as well. And uh, or the free will argument for God, excuse me. He has a theodicy as well. Maybe we'll talk to him about that too. But the uh, the free will theodicy is, is just this, like that... If you're going to allow people to make free decisions, you can't bar them from doing bad things. Like, that's not freedom. And so the gar from the Garden of Eden to the book of Revelation, we see this freedom playing out in the Bible. We see it in reality as well. That a lot of, the, not all the evil, a lot of the evil that we see in the world, the most egregious kinds, are human-to-human -human evils or human-to-animal evils that are being done by somebody's free will or as a consequence of allowing free will. So this explains at least some of it. Another theodicy would be like the natural law theodicy. And that is the idea that, um, I actually had an atheist ask me, Mike, why is it that I stub my toe? That's what I want to know. How is it that stubbing my toe, which hurts a lot, is somehow working together for good? And it may be that part of the reason why there's things, even some natural disasters and stuff is partly, although it may have to do with cosmic battles and things that are going on. Yeah, I think that's a possibility. I just have very little discernment to know when they're happening. Um, at any rate, it also can just be about natural law. That God wants a system of an ordered universe. He wants it. He wants you to be able to do scientific experiments and have consistent results. He wants you to be able to make choices and be able to predict the, the consequences. He wants you to live in like a real world that really happens now, right? Not a not a make believe world where you do something and God decides the outcome uniquely each time, where you pull a trigger and a marshmallow comes out because God doesn't want to let you shoot people. But rather, well, part of that's free will, but another part of it is just natural law. Having consistent natural laws. But, you know, for the same reason you stubbed your toe, for the same reason that mudslide happened, for the same reason there was a hurricane. That's also the same reason that you could plant crops and you could, you could, you could grow them consistently. It's the same reason why you can conduct any scientific experiment. It's the same reason why we can just kind of have a livable world, an existence. 
do I think that fully answers? No, I think it's interesting. I think it's something we should consider. Christianity um, offers several different answers. Another one of them, and this might be kind of hinted at in the book of Job, is an answer called skeptical theism. And skeptical theism is a theodicy where you basically say, we're not in a position to know why God would allow different evils in the world. And so we should accept that we don't know and be okay with that. That's skeptical theism. So uh, another way of looking at it like, is like this. Let's say that um, I asked you, um, how many planets are in the universe? And you're not a physicist, okay? You're just you. <laughs> how many planets are in the universe? And you could go Google it and, re and rely. But I'm trying to just ask you, you. You and your own resources, do you know how many planets are in the universe? And you, like me, would be like, no, nah, I got no clue. Like, a lot. <laughs> like, more than five. You know, like, there's a lot of planets in the universe. There's countless planets, probably, I guess. I mean, I really don't know because I don't have the knowledge. And nor the ability to gain that knowledge. I would just have to rely on somebody else. So I would rightly say, I don't know how many planets are. And I didn't expect to know. And so it's not a big deal. Here's the thought you have to ask. Would I, with my human limitations, with my cognitive limitations, with my experiential limits, with my observational limits, right, with my, with my historical limits being stuck in just this little tiny time zone of my life, would I expect to understand why God allows a forest fire to kill animals in Australia? Would I expect to understand that? Not, do, do I understand it? No. Would I expect to? Would I anticipate being able to figure out distant evils and hard problems and troubles that go on? Why this child we've been praying for is, is dying? Would I expect to know the answer? And I think the answer here, generally speaking, is no. I don't expect to know. And now if I don't expect to know, then how can me not knowing be evidence against God? Not knowing something you never thought you should know is just evidence of your limitations. It's not evidence of anything else. And so that's the skeptical theism perspective. I hope I've explained it simplistically and, and, and thoughtfully enough. And I take a cumulative answer. I would say, yeah, all of these theodicies and more I find interesting. And I think what they do is they give us very a lot of ways to answer the problem of evil. Not just a logical problem, but even the sort of practical experiential problem or the probabilistic problem of evil that... Or these are just other terms for different variations of the problem. I think they give us a cumulative answer that's very strong and very thorough. I'm going to recommend a book, and it's in the video description, by Clay Jones. And it's a book on why God allows evil. I highly recommend it. I, in that particular case, it's not a video I'm putting in the description. It's a book. And the reason is because I think this problem requires you to patiently think. And in particular, I think reading his book and patiently thinking it through is going to be of great value to you if this problem bothers you. He's a brilliant man, philosopher, smarty pants and all that. He's devoted much of his philosophical life, years and years and years, to the problem of evil. And this book is a very accessible, popular level writing on the topic. Now, Christianity not only gives you an explanation for evil and a lot of ways to understand and deal with the fact that there's evil in the world, it also gives you something so wonderful. It gives you hope of a solution to the problem of evil. And this is understated when atheists talk about the problem. Christianity says here's not only an explanation of the issue, perspective and wisdom on how to handle it, but here's a solution too. You feel this intense problem. It, you might even say the problem of evil is so bad that I would think if any religion's true, it better deal with this issue. And Christianity deals with it on the explanation side and it deals with it on the other side, which is the, the resolution side. So I can explain it and I can resolve it in Christian faith. You're, you may still be dealing with the emotional problem of evil where you're just like, okay, all that intellectual stuff, thanks, thanks, that helped, but I'm still just stuck 
torn apart by the emotions. And for that, I say, look, and, and I'll be very pastoral here. The, the solution here is just wait on the Lord, trust in God, understand that even in your weakness and in your emotional being overwhelmed, God is still working. Just wait and trust in him. Sometimes we're at the bottom, but there's going to be a time where you're not there anymore. And you just need to wait on him and trust in him and rest in him. And here's advice that you can't give as an atheist. There is just no hope. There is just no solution. There is just to suck it up. That's the way it is. And I'm, uh, I think that makes atheism not only intellectually inferior, which we'll talk about in two seconds here, but also uh, pragmatically inferior, right? Christianity is better than atheism in that it doesn't leave people as a, as a void. All right, let's look at a little bit more detail here in this problem of evil where he says that paradoxes such as the problem of evil clearly show us the concept of God is contradictory in and of itself and therefore is impossible. Okay, well, again, this is the logical problem of evil. It's the paradox view of it. The, it makes God impossible. Here's what Clay Jones, the philosopher who specializes in this topic, he says, I don't know even one atheist today who uses who even uses the logical problem of evil. They've given it up. And then he clarified, I meant the academic atheists. Village atheists use it all the time. Yeah. So go to the book, Why Does God Allow Evil? That's Clay Jones down below. Great book. But there's more. It actually gets worse because the argument here that the atheist offers is uh, it can actually backfire. It can actually spring back and backfire on the atheist. And here's the reason why. Excuse me, it doesn't backfire on the atheist. I think when it backfires, it's a wonderful thing here for you, atheist friend. <laughs> I think it backfires on atheism. I think the atheism is, is, is messed up by this argument because the problem of evil assumes one thing that doesn't make sense on an atheist worldview, which is evil, moral evil, that there's a moral qualities of wickedness or evil or badness in different behaviors. And it assumes that that's a real thing going on in the world. And then you have to ask the question, how on earth is moral good and evil a real thing on atheism, right? You're acknowledging the problem, but the problem itself is evidence for God. The problem of evil is evidence for God. And yes, in another sense, after you've admitted God's existence and you accept evil, then you go, okay, now we have to reconcile this with God's nature, which Christianity, I think, does very well. I think it does it very well. But it's, but it's a, it's the, the paradox is the atheist saying, um, I'm an atheist. I, I don't believe in objective moral values and duties. Yet, what about the problem of evil? I mean, the atheism's response to the problem of evil is A, it doesn't exist, and B, there's no solution. <laughs> and that, that would be the consistent perspective on it. And I think here, atheist, I just want you, you to be delivered from this insufficient worldview that you're holding. And it's, it can't be healthy for your heart to have these, those kinds of things going on. So evil and atheism are ultimately incompatible. Um, then the article goes on to say, religious people will say, now look at this. I love when people predict how others would respond, right? So he's like, here's the best argument and here's how the religious people are going to respond. But look at what he thinks our response is. Religious people will say that God is outside of space-time and doesn't have to follow the natural laws of reality so he can deny logic. Have you, Christian, have you ever heard someone, I mean, maybe you have, but if, have you ever heard somebody say this? Oh, the problem of evil? Yes, it shows that God is, is paradoxical. His omnipotence and his goodness can't work together. But you know what? It's okay because God can deny logic, right? He can just deny logic. Isn't that amazing? Solution. Problem solved. Let's go to church. Like, who says this? Where is this coming from? Yet 
it, it just, what it reveals is that this atheist, along with many others, they honestly don't know. Like, they think they found a really solid argument, but they don't know. Philosophers don't, even atheist philosophers don't use this. They think they know the religious response, but they're just making stuff up. Or they're talking to some wackadoodle who doesn't really know what they're talking about. And they're repeating those claims. Um, anyway, setting, <laughs> setting that aside, <laughs> setting that aside, um, he then goes on to say, the only problem with that is the logic of, oh, hold on. Let's skip ahead a bit. Um, where's the part where he says, ah, here we go. And that's why the problem of evil remains a common source of doubt among religious people or for religious people. And here's where I want to be super straight, right? Yeah, this absolutely is a common source of doubt for religious people. The problem of evil is probably the number one argument against God that I think people are persuaded by, impacted by, especially when they're going through really hard times and they can't explain it. And my encouragement is this. I get that this is an effective and powerful argument that does draw some people away from God. Other Christians, it has like no effect on them, right? It just has no effect on them whatsoever. But some, it's really pulling them towards unbelief, rejecting God, or even just bitterness towards God. And to that, I say, that's why evil's character building. Um, this is part of the character building nature of evil. This is part of the real trials and real changes that go through our lives. But Christianity does offer intellectual answers to the problem of evil. It also offers emotional help to the problem of evil. But if you reject God, you lose both of those. You can't explain the problem of evil's existence. And you would seem like you'd have to deny it to be consistent. You can't offer any solution to the problem. And it ends up putting you in a worse position. Yet, ironically, some atheists are proud of their lack of any hope. Like he kind of boasts about having a hopeless perspective of the universe as if it's like tough-minded. But it's not. It's just, it's just not true. It's kind of a weird thing. So this, in summary, has been five of the best arguments against God presented by an atheist. One, we're all atheists, which ends up being circular. It assumes there's no evidence for God. And the evidence actually supports Christianity. We talk about that. Give you a bunch of links to follow and to follow up on. Second, indoctrination, which presents a false dichotomy, acting like you can either teach religious things or teach how to think critically, which just assumes atheism is true. Another circular argument, false. The third one is that atheism is instinctual and that backfires because atheism is generally not instinctual and it's also an inconsistent standard and um, there's all sorts of things atheists believe that are not instinctual and they think everybody should believe and they don't apply that standard there. It's a special standard made to fight religion and it works for religion instead of against it. Number four, religion is desperation. And again, he had just said in three that atheism was instinctual, yet now in number four, he offers a whole case that religion is desperation, which means that you have this instinct driving you to be religious, ironically. But this is also circular because saying religion is desperation assumes that atheism is true and religion is false. That's why you can call it desperation and not simply observing reality. And atheism can also be desperation, and so that would backfire. And number five, the problem of evil, a truly difficult problem, a really hard but truly answered issue in the Christian worldview. And if you take away Christianity and you want to be an atheist, you should at least evaluate how you're handling the problem of evil because you're not. You're just using it as a club to beat Christianity on the head. But we have good answers and good, good responses for that, and I hope you guys would consider it. This has been a study of a random atheist article. I mean, I was not going to be teaching the Mark series for two weeks. And so I just went into my old notes and show notes like ideas and said, oh, here's an article. This will be quick and easy. Ended up spending a lot more time on it than I wanted and making a lot longer video than I had originally planned. 
But I do hope that you guys find it uh, really and truly fruitful and helpful and encouraging. And if you're an atheist who wants to go deeper, tons of links below. Thoughtful, careful reasoning. It's not just preaching. I hope you'll check it out. God bless you.